We want to be really clear with what this time is that we devote so much time to every week when we open up God's Word. This is not a time for us to be filled with merely information. This is a time for us to continue worshiping our God together. So there's a temptation that when we stop actively singing and praying, then we sit down, that we then become participants that are kind of watching the show, and that is not our desire here at all. That what we are desiring is that worship would continue as we open up God's Word with every one of us who have the Spirit of the Lord in us. And so in the spirit of worship, would you please open to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 this morning is where we are. We've been going through for Hebrews for several months. And Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3 is our text this morning. This is God's Word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is God's word. Now, Jesus' disciples made many requests of him During his earthly ministry, some were good, some were bad. One of the best requests that I think that they made to Jesus that likely doesn't come to your mind when you think about what were the good things that they asked of Jesus, what were the good requests they made of him, was one that they made in Luke chapter 17 when they said to him, increase our faith. Jesus responded back to them, if you just had the faith of a a mustard seed, then you would be able to say to this mulberry bush, Go into the sea and it would obey. I have all sorts of questions with why you would ever want to have a mulberry bush like be uprooted and go into the sea, but that doesn't negate the, the greatness of their request of Jesus, that they would have their faith increase. And in his response is that just a small dose, a small amount of faith can lead to remarkable results, making this a great request. And I wonder if we were to make the same request of Jesus, if we were to ask God to increase our faith, would we know what we were asking for? Would we have an understanding of the nature of faith that when we say to increase it, we would know what we're actually wanting to see happen? I think that faith is a a word that's often used, it's thrown around a lot, but is it really grasped? Is it understood what it is? Do we understand the nature of faith and how it's demonstrated in life? Well, God gives us explanations in the word of faith so that we would know what it is. And he gives us examples of faith. That's what chapter 11 is going to primarily do in Hebrews 11. He's going to give us examples of faith and what it looked like for them on the ground as they're living these things out. Because there is something that keeps someone, going back to chapter 10, ten, there's something that keeps someone living for an abiding possession, a better one than the things on the earth. There's something that lets someone, allows someone, frees someone to let their, their stuff be plundered and to do it joyfully. There's something that gives confidence in the middle of hard struggles and suffering that you're going through. There's something that keeps one from shrinking back when the world is pressing in. And that something was said to be faith. So what is it? It's central word to our beliefs, 
Indeed, you can't even describe Christianity without using the word. It's central, and so we must know its nature. We must know its working. And in here in the first three verses of chapter 11, as we go into this great faith chapter, we get to see faith's description, faith's commendation, and faith's demonstration. So really what we have in, in verses, the first three verses of chapter 11 is kind of an extension of the conclusion from chapter 10. He says that the righteous, quoting prophets of old, the righteous, they live by what? They live by faith. And so now what does that faith look like? What does it consist of? And that's where he gets to in chapter 11. So the author continues the thought that ends chapter 10 by saying, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, a lot of people would say, like, when we, we go to chapter 11, verse 1, that here's a definition of faith, and I think that's somewhat true. It is somewhat of a definition, but it's not an exhaustive definition. It's instructive, but it's not exhaustive. This doesn't tell us all that faith is here in Hebrews 11. For instance, we don't see mentioned, uh, the, the one thing that we stress more often than not when we talk about faith is the object of faith, not the strength of faith. I mean, a lot of these things aren't really defined and spelled out here in these first three verses, and so I would, I would caution us to say, this is a definition of faith. Well, this is part of it. This is instructing us to its nature, but it's not exhaustive, and so don't go here alone. But he says of faith, it's the assurance of things hoped for. And that word assurance is a debated word with how to translate it. It can be translated a few different ways. Uh, The two kind of primary ways to translate it are that faith is the essence of things hoped for, or that faith is, as it's translated in the ESV and many of your translations, the assurance or confidence of things hoped for. So we have essence or substance or assurance and confidence. Those are kind of the two main ways you can translate it. We get a lot of help from Hebrews when talking about different language, but here we don't get much help because it's used in both ways in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's used in the sense of essence or substance. It says of Jesus that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his essence, nature, substance. That's the same word used there. The other word, assurance and confidence, that one is used in chapter 3. Same kind of way, verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, assurance. The same word used here in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Uh, essence and substance, if we were to translate it that way, it would, it would take an objective form. In other words, this is something that is not uh, subject to our emotions, our feelings, or anything. It's, it's something outside of us that is objective. And so one commentator says it this way. When we're talking, if we're saying that we're defining it as essence and substance, that faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. If we were to take it as assurance and confidence, it would be subjective, almost the the internal, psychological sense that you get of faith. The assurance and confidence is a good word for English for it. And so another commentator says that faith means, in this sense, putting our full confidence in the things that we hope for. Now, these things are not mutually exclusive. They are indefinitely, they are interrelated in their working. So, in other words, even if you were to take it assurance and confidence, you have a subjective sense of something that is objective, real, solid, not going anywhere, though yet unseen. But it seems as if the author is speaking in an objective way. It doesn't seem like he's talking about the internal subjective sense and psychological sense of your assurance, but of the objective. There is something real, and it's not subject to our feelings, emotions, etc. in that. So it seems as if the author is taking it objectively, that these are, this is the essence, the substance of faith. I wouldn't 
fight you if you said, no, it's confidence, it's assurance. I would say, I think those things work together anyway. So as long as we're going in the same direction, I'm happy to go either way there. So these are objectively real things, no matter what you say about it. What is hoped for are objectively real things that are promised by God to be attained in the future. And so faith is this thing that is looking forward in a direction to solid things to be attained one day that are promised by God, though as yet right now they are unseen. And this is where he continues, the author continues in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now this is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25, says, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience, a similar idea there. And my immediate question when I come to it is the conviction of things not seen is why is it not seen? If I'm setting this thing up and I want you to believe in something, I'm going to put it in front of you that you would see it. So maybe it's somewhat aggravating to us that we say, my God, why why is it unseen? Why do we have the conviction of things unseen? Wouldn't it work better if it were tangible and palpable where we could see it, hear it, touch it? the way we can other things, but somehow we trust the mysterious and glorious purposes of God, that the conviction of things not seen is going to somehow work for his greater glory and our greater joy. It's our conviction. Faith is grabbing hold of future unseen realities with certainty. Knowing that they're real, knowing that they're solid, is grabbing a hold of them with certainty, enough certainty to be, to be plundered joyfully. So it could be said that we're grabbing hold of, faith grabs hold of future unseen realities, but I think we could also turn that around and say this, that it could be said that those unseen realities, that future that has been promised, actually grabs hold of us. And it works its way out in our lives. See, convictions are not so much beliefs that we hold, they are that. But they're beliefs that hold us. And this future unseen realities are not things that just faith just grabs hold on. They grab hold of us so much so that it says, like, plunder my property for the name of Christ. And I'll let that happen joyfully. Faith looks beyond what is seen, knowing that there's something out there unseen. And it's future, that it's coming, that it's promised, that it's going to be there. And then it's going to be changing how we live in the present. And so one commentator says this. That the Christian lives from the future into the past. And so the essence or the substance of things hoped for should mark the present. The conviction of things not seen should be seen in the present life of the believer. The question is, does that describe us? That we're one who lives from the future into the past. Is our present living marked by future, unseen, solid, certain realities? Are we living by faith? Are we living in the light of things hoped for, promised to us by God, guaranteed for us in the future? Or are we living for the immediately present? The things that we can see? Or are we living, maybe, maybe I could say it another way, primarily for the things present? My fear is that we do struggle with living maybe fully for the immediately present or primarily for the immediately present. It's what comes natural to us. We see it, we hear it, we touch it. It's all around us all the time. This must be it. It's one of our natural inclinations. I think we're not too unlike the man that we see in Luke chapter 12. There's a man in Luke chapter 12 and he 
Speaking to Jesus, Jesus tells this parable of this man in verse 16. It says, he told this parable saying that the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, in one sense, we could look at this man in this, this, in this parable and we say, seems like a really wise thing to do. You've been blessed. Like, let's, let's create space for you to have more. He's a good steward, right? You could say that of him in his life. He's a good steward. Maybe he's blessed by God that God has actually financially given him some blessing so that he could build up and store more. But Jesus calls him a fool. Not for those things only, but because he says that he wasn't rich toward God. In other words, he is convicted by the things seen, and his conviction of seen things keeps him from being rich toward God. Does that describe some of our activity? Does his attitude describe some of our attitude at times? Here's a man who heaps up riches, he relaxes, he eats, he drinks, he's merry, thinking all along the way, this is all there is. Why wouldn't you? And so he makes no effort to be rich toward God. He's driven by his convictions. So he has no concern of any sort of possible unseen future realities. He lives for the seen, what's right around him. And right now he's, he's gaining and so he builds more and says, eat, drink, and be merry. And indeed, he is wise and blessed if the present is all there is. And we should go and do likewise. If this is all there is, we should do that. But often we have those same kind of tendencies, even though we know there's other convictions that should be at work in our lives. That there are things that are unseen. Do we not have some of those same kind of tendencies as this man? Do we not have some of the same kind of earthly convictions that he had? I think we're more like this man than we want to believe. Is not more one of our greatest pursuits in life? Maybe more grain, more goods, more property could be more glory, more fame, more notoriety, could be more power, more influence, more control, could be more comfort, more ease, eat, drink, be merry. This flows from your convictions, from your faith in the seen things, or from your lack of faith in unseen things, future realities. The scripture would call believers to not be those who live by sight, but live differently by faith not for what's right in front of us but what for is for us in the future that's unseen that is real that's going to be there that's guaranteed we must hold on to God's promised future his unseen things or rather let them hold on to us as we see all these things and we want to run to them we let those unseen things we let them grab hold of us Because we're certain that we have not just a better possession, but an abiding possession awaiting us. And so we adjust our living now according to what we know will be there in the future. Christians are those who live from the future into the past. Do you? So faith's description in verse 1, although not exhaustive, is certainly instructive and challenging. That the future affects the present. Future unseen objective realities affect how we ought to live right now. Faith's description and nature is vital because because of what is written about in verse 2. Faith's commendation. 
So listen to the author again. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. People of old, saints in the Old Testament, those that they could look back to. In fact, I think it is safe to say that the author probably has the the people of Genesis and the book of Genesis squarely in mind, knowing where we're getting ready to go in verse 3 and where we're getting ready to go in chapter 11. So he's probably thinking even of those saints way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. Saints of old. And the people of old received their accommodation how? By faith, he says. Now, I love this because they received it. It, It's it's passive. They they are getting something. They are being gifted something. And the implied giver of this commendation is God. And so one commentator says that this is an instance of a divine passive, a form of expression common in the New Testament, in which the implication is that the unexpressed agent is God himself. They are receiving a gift, as it were, from God. Commendation from God. What matters the most in the end for all people of all time is this commendation from God. It's without question that that is the most important thing in all the world. Jesus says to us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The idea is that there's no profit in that. Not if he loses his soul. Or he tells people, he tells his believers, don't fear the one who after killing the body can't throw you into hell. Don't fear that one. What profit is that? Fear the one who after killing the body can cast soul into hell. That's the one to think about. That's the commendation. We need that one's commendation. And this commendation that comes from God, it only comes in one way. It comes by faith. Without which, Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible to please God. The only way to receive this commendation, the only way to please God is through faith. It's by faith. That's the only way. There is no other way around this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it said it's appointed for every man to die, and after that comes judgment. And there is a judge over this judgment, and that is very clear. Our consciences, no matter where you are today, no matter if you're seeking or you, you've been a follower of believer, or believer of Jesus for a long time, every one of us, our conscience is bearing witness to us that we will be judged, that there is a judge out there, and the judge will have this final gavel that will fall. And his verdict is the only verdict that matters. Believers, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Similar idea when he says that, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You can can see his faith being worked out in the things he's writing. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Love this. If you judge me, that's not ultimately going to affect me. If I judge me, that's not either. Right? I mean... It's a small thing to be judged by you guys. It's a small thing to be judged, even if I judge myself, because I'm not the final judge. It's the Lord's judgment, His gavel falling. That's the one that matters. And His commendation, that's the one that matters. And so everything that's hidden is going to be revealed. And so we better get right with that judge. Because we need His commendation in the end. That's the one that matters. God's commendation is so valuable. I think Paul agrees here in 1 Corinthians. So valuable, so infinite that all other commendations, no matter what they are, from himself or from others, we could go the other way. Not if you judge me. What if you approve of me? What if I approve of myself? He says, that's not a value either. 
It's God's commendation that matters in the end. All these other commendations that you could receive, they're going to pale in comparison to the one that's going to happen in the end. And from the beginning, from Genesis on, there's only one way of gaining that commendation from God. It's by faith. There's only one way to get approval before the Lord. By faith. And so the most important thing, the most important thing to God was never actions, though those aren't unimportant. Certainly not unimportant. But not the most important. No, he wanted belief. He wanted hearts that loved him, that would trust him. And so here we have a Hebrew audience that might have been tempted to think that, that maybe we can stand in line of those people of old, those elders, those ancestors, those forefathers, by all the externals. I'm physically descended from them. Likely some of the audience was. Or I'm staying in line with their traditions, with following Judaism, carrying out these sacrifices, being circumcised, listening and trying to obey the laws that God has given to us. Maybe that will be enough to receive commendation from God. Now we know the answer of this from Galatians, that that's a big no. But hear it again, and maybe even specifically to this audience, that would have mattered. If they're saying, I'm part of God's people, I keep the law, then let's just leave Jesus behind because every time I follow after him pretty hard, like my stuff gets plundered and I have struggles and sufferings all the time. So maybe if I just keep with Judaism and my forefathers and try to do that, then I can have the combination from God and not have my stuff plundered. That seems like a good idea. And I think we might be tempted to have a similar way of life. Now, now maybe it's not to go back to Judaism again, but... Don't we have a similar way of trying to focus on the externals for commendation from God? So I I go to church. I take my kids to church. I want them to be raised in a good environment as well. I'm a good citizen. I don't try to harm other people. I'm generally trying to work for the good. Maybe if I do all those things, I can receive my commendation from God. And here is what we need to hear from God's word. That there's only one way to receive commendation. There's only one way to find approval before the Lord. It's by faith. It's faith that receives commendation and approval from God. This was true of people of old. They were to be looking forward in faith to God's promises fulfilled. And so to leave Jesus, the one who fulfilled those promises, is to leave those forefathers. Is to leave their faith and the kind of faith that they have. This is a, not just a faith of the past. This is a faith of the presence. But now we don't look forward as they did. We look back to the one who fulfilled those promises. And we trust in him. And we're staying in that same line of faith from people of old by believing in the promises fulfilled in Jesus and applied to us here. Do you see how central faith is? It's always been this way. It's always been central and it is still central. In the book of Acts, the author of Acts, Luke, seems to define Christians in that way. If you look in Acts chapter 2, it'll be up on the screen, verse 44. And so Peter has preached this sermon at Pentecost. The Spirit has fallen. People are are getting saved. And here's kind of how Luke kind of defines them and designates them. All who believed were together. I I don't know what else. They were the people that got together who believed In Acts chapter 4, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. In Acts chapter 5, it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. And we could go on and on with this over and over again. There's this repeated designation, this repeated title of believers, of Christians. They were those who believed. In other words, they were those who had faith. The essence of Christianity is, is they were people of faith. They believed in something. 
That's, all, that's our definition in a sense. We're being designated and defined by faith. And so here's what faith does. It unites us to the promises of God. Just as it did for the people of old, they were united to God by believing in his promises that one day he would send a deliverer. They were looking forward to those things being fulfilled. Now our faith looks back to those fulfilled in Christ and it unites us to him. It unites us to those promises so much so that by faith, the verdict that Jesus received is the verdict that we will receive in him. What's his verdict? Beloved son. Come, have your inheritance of all the nations for all time. And he says, by faith, we will be co-heirs along with him. Righteous, accepted, loved. That's the verdict for those who have faith in Christ. And brothers and sisters, if that's your commendation, that's going to change how you live. If you're so certain that you're going to be a co-heir with Christ, nothing is not his. Everything is his. If you're so certain that you're going to be a co-heir with Christ, that was going to be demonstrated in your life. So faith is central not just for future things, but for how we live now. It's demonstrated now. And I think that's a little bit about what the author gets at in verse 3. It says in verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith, by faith, we understand. That's interesting. The faith of future things is, is demonstrated in the present, and it's also tied to the past. So we're understanding something that has happened in the past. And so the author, once again, as pastorally wise, includes himself with his people. Before he talks about a lot of other people of old, he joins in with his audience and says, we understand these things by faith. Now here's what we understand. And he gives them some, some things that they are in agreement on. But I think that it's interesting that he says, by faith we understand. In other words, the Bible doesn't call people to turn off their brains when they, when they come in the door. Right? Don't pursue hard thought or deep thought. Christianity is, we're, we're Christians by faith. Right? Don't give it any thought. No, faith is not a leap in the dark or some irrational and unreasonable conclusion to what's going on in the world. I love what St. Augustine said when he says, faith is nothing if it is not thought through. Give yourself to hard thinking. By faith, you can understand these things. Sinclair Ferguson says that faith seeks understanding and is nourished through it. And so here we have faith and understanding working together. And it's by faith that we understand. And what do we understand? That the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the Bible is God's revelation. God is revealing something about himself. He's actually interpreting what he's revealed about himself as well. The Bible is God's revelation, and, and people were created in his image to know him, to have reason and understanding. They were given that as image bearers. And so God's revelation goes out to people that were given reason and understanding and a way to know God and know what is going on. And they're meant to respond to that. And so I love what one commentator says when he says that revelation, inevitably, not revelation in the book, right? right? Revelation from God, he's revealing himself, the word, inevitably involves on the part of the recipient, that is those who hear that word, the activity of the intellective faculty. And some of us, we, I don't have intellective faculty enough, I guess, to like, what's intellective faculty? But I think that's tied to your mind, so... I'm still working that out. 
God's revelation has gone out, and here's what it's to do. It's to work on us. We're to, we're to receive it. We can understand it. We can know it, and we can respond rightly to it. God's revelation has gone out about creation, and that revelation is to be received from us by faith. So the Bible calls people to use all of their intellectual abilities to take God at his word. God has given us reason and understanding as his image bearers to take all of these things in that way to take him at his word. All of our intellect, all of our minds, all of our reason, all of our understanding is meant to push us to take God at his word. Though Genesis tells of God creating everything, everything out of nothing, just by using words. It says this repeated phrase in the book of Genesis, let there be and there was, let there be and there was. And the, in between that is God just speaking. Let there be light, light does this over and over and over again. And to respond rightly, Hebrews says, to this revelation is to respond by faith, is to acknowledge God as creator. That's, that's the bare minimum, but there's a lot more that could be affirmed in that. More fully, to respond to that revelation that God created everything out of nothing is to respond to say that God is not only creator, but he's creative, that he's powerful, that he is eternal because where was he before? He wasn't created. He's creating. He's eternal. And that he has authority. So he says stuff and it just happens. It's to affirm a lot of things. And so the author says that he and his readers, or we're in this together, we understand these things by faith. And we agree on this revelation by faith. And so he's linking himself with the audience. And this is big because I don't think that he is only alluding to the book of Genesis here. I think that it's likely that this author, having written the book of Hebrews, is also alluding us back, taking us back to Hebrews chapter 1. And here's what is said in Hebrews chapter 1.1. Similar type words that long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In other words, there's one primary way that God is revealing himself now, and it's through His Son, who we know to be Jesus, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. And so here we're talking about creation, and it would have been hard for them not to surely have thought back to, wait, He talked about creation a little bit already. He talked that it happened through the Son. And so the response to the revelation of creation that they're having, that they agree that it was created out of nothing, seems to be good and right, but it also has implications for their beliefs, their faith, their convictions about Jesus. Or it ought to. So in other words, no one can say that they can have faith in God's revelation, in God's word, in God's creation, and reject Jesus. Those are incongruent. In other words, they are to demonstrate their faith by trusting not just that God created everything out of nothing, but that he did it through the Son, who is the revelation of God who, as Hebrews has told us over and over and over again, is the greater one, the better one, the one who is supremely to receive our honor, our glory, and our praise. It's Jesus. So it seems as if the the impetus is, is you cannot say that we have faith in this God and reject the greatest revelation of himself that he has ever given. Many tried to do this. In John chapter 5, we have some really smart guys that try to do this. That Jesus responds to I think well. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to some religious elite. And he says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that you think that in them you have eternal life. That seems like a good idea. I would say search the scriptures. 
They're just going to tell you about life. They're not off there. And it is they that bear witness about me. It says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I'm going to throw out this idea again and again and again that you can somehow follow God and reject his greatest revelation in Jesus. That you can follow God and leave Jesus behind. Can't happen. If anyone truly trusts God's word, then they're going to place their faith in Jesus. Who's the center and the climax of that word. The, the center and the climax of all of God's revelation. And that's what we hear in, in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, he continues after saying that all the world was created through him. He says, of Jesus, this greatest revelation of God, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds this universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you trust the word, God's revelation, you're going to trust in this Jesus, the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. And though we now look and we have this conviction of things not seen, we know Jesus is unseen now. He has been revealed. He is being revealed through his word. This word we're to receive by faith. The revelation of Jesus is the climax of all of human history and the response to him only, the only right response to him is faith. And here's what's reality is that small, small portions, small doses of faith give confidence to withstand struggles and suffering. They give joy when your stuff is being plundered. They keep you from shrinking back when life is really hard. And so Jesus' disciples, when they requested and made that great request of Jesus to increase their faith, made a great request Maybe without understanding and knowing the, the true nature and essence of faith or knowing how central it really was. But here's what happened, that Jesus answered their request, did he not? And it changed the world. He increased their faith, giving them faith and giving them more faith, and that shaped the world. So now that we know more about faith... How about we ask the same thing? And that's my hope and prayer for us as we go through Hebrews 11, is that we would continue to ask for ourselves and for one another, increase our faith. And maybe the one who didn't spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will give us more faith. And maybe he'll use that to shape the world for his glory and for our joy. Let's ask that that is what God would do with it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your people gathered together. Would you please, in the hearing of your word, increase their faith. There are some that don't have any, so increase it. Give them faith. It is a gift. Give it. You are a generous giver, and we trust that he who didn't 
spare his own son but gave him up will graciously give us faith. We're asking for those who are faithful, who have put their trust in you, that you would increase their faith dramatically. And that by this you would shape the world and receive all glory. God, we thank you for being so good to give us your word. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Would you please continue to grow our faith 